The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24th through 26th. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org thrive. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami. And this is the Spirituality and Health Podcast. Our guest today, Julia Cameron, is the best-selling author of more than 40 books, fiction and nonfiction, as well as a poet, songwriter, filmmaker, and playwright. She's most well-known, at least in my mind, for her book, The Artist's Way, which has been translated into 40 languages and has sold over 5 million copies. Her newest book is Seeking Wisdom, a spiritual path to creative connection. Julia Cameron, welcome to Spirituality and Health Podcast. Thank you. It's good to join you. You have a lovely voice. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. You know, I want to start by asking you something that's, I guess, sort of off the wall. So your new book, I just said, is called Seeking Wisdom, A Spiritual Path to Creative Connection. As I read through the book and engaged with some of the exercises that you offer, it seemed to me that as much as the book is a spiritual path to creative connection, it's even more a creative path to spiritual connection. I'd say that's accurate. So you agree with that. How do you understand the difference or, or the overlap between spirituality and creativity? Well, I have found that if you work on your spirituality, your creativity increases. And if you work on your creativity, your spirituality increases. So the two go very much hand in glove. So how would you define spirituality? Oh, I wouldn't dream of trying to define spirituality. (laughs) Good for you. Didn't fall for that one, huh? Even with a good voice. (laughs) How about if I ask it this way? Would you define creativity? Well, again, uh, creativity would seem to me to be an influx of a higher power into our lives. And I think that people who are working on their creativity find themselves opening up their hearts and finding a path that leads them forward. Certainly, yeah, that that makes sense to me. I mean, one of my great passions, maybe my greatest, is God. I mean, that sounds incredibly chutzpahdik, but but let's just let it sit there. So I was very excited to see that Seeking Wisdom takes on the idea of God directly. I mean, your book opens with this sentence. 
In order to pursue a working relationship with God, we must examine our own God concept. So clearly you're making a distinction between God and our own God concept. You then mention that you, know, you, you had to move past 16 years of Catholic upbringing. I'm, I'm reading from the book. You had to move behind past 15, 16 years of Catholic upbringing by examining my God concept and ultimately creating a new one. What was the God concept you inherited and why did you have to go beyond it? Well, I, I think that like many people, I had an idea of an authoritarian God, a God that was strict, stern, overseeing all, and difficult. I think that we have a creative creativity myth that says it's a beautiful day in paradise, and then uppity Eve bites the apple and passes it to Adam, and Adam bites the apple, and then the skies part, and a booming voice says, how dare you? I told you not to eat from that tree. And so from this, we learn that we have a pretty jealous God, a God that is inclined to punish us, and a God that we perhaps would prefer to hide from. You know, my sense is, I mean, first of all, that story, the Adam and Eve story in the Garden of Eden, is the way it's normally read, normally interpreted, is one of the most dangerous and maybe evil stories that, and imagine, I, I don't know if uh, there's a whole debate whether early stories in Genesis were written by men or women, but let's say one of the, <laughs> the way it's the way it's interpreted, it's certainly interpreted from a male stance where they're, I mean, you basically blame Eve, for, you know, it's, it's just the way you said it, you know, for all these problems that inflict humanity. The, and not the, but an alternative reading of the text is when it says that Eve saw that the tree was, she knew intuitively that it was delicious, the, the fruit was delicious. She saw that it was beautiful, and then she realized it would make her wise. There's a Jewish midrash that says these are three different visits to the tree. The first time she sees how delicious it is, but she doesn't eat it. She masters her hunger. The second time she sees how beautiful it is, but she doesn't grasp it. She masters her desire to own the beautiful. It's only when she sees that it will make her wise that she risks death, not that they knew what death was necessarily, but that she, she risks death in order to become wise. So in, in that reading, she's more like Prometheus stealing fire from the gods. Here she's stealing fire. She's stealing wisdom from God. And, and the way you, you said it, where God is jealous, punishing, I would add a fearsome kind of God. Since that concept is created by people, I think it reflects humanity's jealousy, capacity for jealousy. It's our, I don't know, love of punishing the other and our innate fear that we simply project onto God and then hope that we can placate God in some way to avoid those things. Is that the, that it's, I'm guessing, but I'm, I'm guessing that that's the kind of image of God that you had to overcome, because it certainly is the kind of image of God that I had to overcome as I hopefully outgrew the Judaism that I was born into. 
Mm-hmm. I, I think you've described accurately a fierce God, a God that we are afraid of attracting his attention. And I think if we had a different creativity myth, where it's a beautiful day in paradise and Eve takes a bite of the apple and hands it to Adam and he takes a bite of the apple. And then the skies part and a mellifluous voice says, far out. It took you long enough. I made that apple red for a reason. Mm. My my own preference would be, given that I'm I'm an overeater, God, the the sky would part and his loving voice would say, do you want fries with that? (laughs) (laughs) That would be, ooh, apple and fries. Uh So so what what is the concept of God that you have now? Well, it's one that I got when I was struck sober. I'm sober almost 44 years, and I found myself needing to stay sober and being told well, then you must pray. And I said, well, I, I have Catholic education and I don't like those prayers and I'm not comfortable praying. And they said, well, you must believe in something. And I thought about it and I said, I do believe in something. The line from Dylan Thomas, the force that through the green fuse drives the flower. So it was a creative energy that was very specific, very grounded very generous, very kind, very tolerant. And this is still the God that I believe in, the creative force that through the universe drives the flower. So it makes it a rose instead of a daisy. So when when we talk in 12-step language about the God of our understanding, I mean, one of the things that always is a challenge to me around that idea is it's the God of my understanding. So it reflects something deep inside of me and not necessarily whatever the ultimately unknown and unknowable reality may be. Do you think that being struck sober was an act of being, I don't know what the verb might be. I mean, you struck again, but but maybe shocked into a, a truer sense of who you were, and and therefore the God of your understanding became something very different, because now you were who you really were, and not the woman that you were trained to be in your 16 years of, of Catholic school or Catholic training. So I think we should read a poem that talks about the genesis of the, of the book, Seeking Wisdom. And it's a, it's a poem that I hope you connect to. It's called Jerusalem is Walking in This World. This is a great happiness. The air is silk. There is milk in the looks that come from strangers. I could not be happier if I were bread and you could eat me. Joy is dangerous. It fills me with secrets. Yes, kisses in my veins. The pains I take to hide myself are sheer as glass. Surely this will pass. The wind like kisses. The music in the soup. The group of trees laughing as I say their names. It is all Hosanna. It is all prayer. 
Jerusalem is walking in this world. Jerusalem is walking in this world. So I think uh, that my God concept came to be one born out of bliss instead of fear. Ah, that's what I was looking for. Born out of bliss instead of fear. Do you have a sense of why that, and, and this is obviously a judgment call, but and it could be wrong, but do you have a sense of why that is so rare, that our idea of God is being born out of bliss rather than fear? Why, why is bliss more frightening to so many of us than fear? Well, I, I think that there's a swept away feeling about bliss where we feel like oh dear, I'm not in control. And I'd like, if it's all right with you, to read one more poem, which I believe uh, connects us to our experience of bliss. And it's called Unprepared. I'm not prepared for this. I can't pronounce this bliss. The way we flow, the knowing where to go, this ebb and flow. Can't we take it slow? Where are the walls, the shadows in the halls? This light, can it be right? Where does it come from? I've known a different sun, walked a different earth where air was used for grieving. I think we're leaving. Before we met, I knew your face from stars and stones. I knew your name from wind and grasses. Before we met, the red earth held my heart. The sky cradled my dreams. The forest floor was my green bed. These were what I wed before we met. Now that you are here, I'm wed to galaxies. Our sky does not contain me. Our sun is a candle to what I see. Sheer as a cliff, the walls drop away. Wow. I mean, that, we, let, let's go into that a little bit, because that, that's such a powerful poem. The, the end where, where now that we've met, you know, I, I, you're experiencing galaxies, that reminds me of the passage in the Bhagavad Gita, where the hero... Uh, invokes, you know, begs Krishna, who's his charioteer, to reveal his true self. And what he reveals is the infinite galaxy, similar to what God reveals to Job at the end of the book of Job. And it leads to both, I think, Nargarjuna and Job. It leads them to this deep, self-transcendent silence, which, just because I'm thinking out loud here with this poem, which is the epitome at least at the moment in my mind, of being unprepared. You can't be prepared for God because then you're really only being, you're just preparing yourself for some idea that you have of God. You can't be prepared for the creative process because then it's not really creative. When, when you do morning pages, well, let me personalize it. When I do morning pages, I'm prepared to sit down, pick up, the pen, but I'm not prepared to write, or certainly I'm not prepared to write anything in particular. And this lack of preparedness, it sounds like in, in um, I think it's Korean Zen Buddhism, 
there's this, maybe in, in Zen in general, but there's a Korean Zen master who talks about not knowing or a Japanese Zen master who talks about the unborn state. Or we might even talk about Christ consciousness or the mind of Christ or you know, all, all these different ways of languaging the same quality of not knowing. That, that is either a necessary prerequisite to the bliss you're talking about or the result of the bliss. Or, or maybe you can't even make a distinction. But I bet that's why people prefer something they can be frightened of because they imagine it and scare themselves out of bliss because of it. But what you're talking about is something way more dangerous because it is. it requires us not to know and to be unprepared, to live without a script, to walk, you know, without a net. It's far more frightening than anything we could possibly imagine as some supernatural demon who's, you know, going to punish us if possible. It seems to me, and here's the question, I know there must be a question in there somewhere. It seems to me that when you, not you personally, Julia, but when one engages in the artist's way, and so many of your books are, are dealing with that in one way or the other, and Seeking Wisdom does it in a around prayer. I want to get to that. But when you're engaged in the artist's way, the way is un... I mean, think of it as a path. The way is uncharted, right? You don't know. I mean, thinking of it not as the artist's way as in the artist's, you know, methodology, but the artist's way, the artist's road. The road is unmapped. The road is uncharted. The way is fundamentally unknown. And that's, it seems to me, and this is the question, is this what you're inviting us to? This unknown, un, this unprepared state of, of bliss? Yes, in a word. When we t get people to do morning pages, we get them to reach inside themselves for a previously unsuspected strength. And I think that when you do morning pages, they train us to risk and step into the unknown. They they train us to try. And at first, when the morning pages suggest a risk, we think, I can't do that. And then they'll suggest it again, and you'll think, well, maybe I could try that. And then when they suggest it a third and sort of final time, it's, all right, <laughs> I'll go along with you. I'll try it. And the I'll try it is what brings us to an expanded state of self. Mm. And it's, it's based on a trust of you, I would think. Want to fearlessly explore your creative spirit? Join artist Susie K. Edwards for Path of the Butterfly, a weekend workshop at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York, May 24 through 26. Experiment with a variety of art forms, engage in mindfulness, walking, and silent meditation, and discover a new and free-flowing creative vision. This workshop is for beginners and professional artists. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. 
Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Well, I think what happens with morning pages is that we come to trust ourselves. When we start pages, we may think, I have nothing to say, my life is dull. But then after we've been doing them for a few weeks, we find ourselves saying, Oh, my life is interesting. Oh, I get it. And it's that feeling of I get it that comes to us through morning pages. And if it's all right with you, I'd like to do another poem. I I feel like the poems express better what I'm trying to say. I'm honored. Yeah, absolutely. This is called Remembering. I was not there when your mother bore you. Surely you came into this world hungering and wet. Surely you came, like the rest of us, from that dark sea of souls, that sighing that brings us forth and calls us back. We all share that. If this is true, and it is even for you, Why are you a broken glass smashed against the floor? Why not the sea's grass on the ocean floor? Why not a smooth stone, a willow in the wind? Why do you break, not bend? And even broken, why not mend? You do know how. Walk with me to the edge of the city. Take off your shoes and feel the earth. It is softer than a woman. It is safer than your father. It is water. It is air. It is where we are returning with this yearning you can't name. Cast off your shame. It's an old coat. Remember who you are. You are a star. A mountain that fountain in the sun. Your heart is the velvet cave where birds sing. Are you remembering? So I think that what happens to us when we do morning pages and work the artist's way is that we find ourselves remembering a larger and more adventurous, more encouraged self. Yeah, I think that's apps. I, I mean, I agree with you 100. That that's I mean, that's the heart. I think of of you know, if we were going to define spirituality, it would be a process by which you remember that larger self. In, in my own sense, is that the self is not it's not that Julia has a larger self and Rami has a larger self. But there's just one infinite capital S self that manifests as all reality. Do, do you see it as, as more separate or 
part of this larger non-dual reality? Well, I believe we become in touch with a separate self, and that in turn puts us in touch with a greater self. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That makes, that makes sense. You know, I love this idea. I mean, it was more than an idea in the poem. It's sort of a command, cast off your shame. That is another thing I think people have so much difficulty with. As, as if the shame not, not only defines us, but somehow protects us from having to remember who we really are, this greater self and then this infinite self. Why, why, are we, why is it so difficult to cast off shame? What do we get out of it? Well, I, I think all of us are trained to shame. Oh. I think we're trained to have a sense of ourselves as flawed. I think we're trained to have a sense of ourselves as separate. Uh, and so when we say cast off your shame, it's an old coat. It's a challenge. It's, it's a challenge to cast off your shame. And calling it an old coat defines it as flawed. And that the sense of ourself as flawed is in itself flawed. Mm. That also makes sense. I mean, I'm thinking when you're saying that, when Jesus says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. I don't, I mean, Jesus didn't speak Greek. The, the Gospels are written in Greek. So Jesus is speaking in probably Aramaic. And in that context, because Aramaic and Hebrew are cognates, he's probably saying something when, when he uses the word perfect, what would probably be in Hebrew shalem, which is whole and also gives us the word shalom, peace. But looking at it, and, and if who knows if this is what he meant or this is what he said, but be whole as the divine is whole. And whole would include the flawed. And that's why when you said our notion of flawed is flawed, that really spoke to me because it seems to me we're saying, look, everything has got flaws. I mean, that's, you know, Leonard Cohen's notion of the cracks. That's how the light gets in. We see in, in iconography in the church where, you know, Jesus's heart is exposed and, and the light of, of the divine is flowing through him. Flawed, our idea of flawed is flawed when we set it up as a dualistic, I'm either whole or I'm flawed. I'm either good or I'm flawed. Whereas if the idea of flawed is flawed, then yeah, I'm flawed. That's part of the greater wholeness of which God embraces, or part of the greater wholeness that is the divine itself. But again, these are tough things for, for people to, to grasp. When you're doing, and I'm just sticking with morning pages, but I really, and I know we're going to run out of time way sooner than I thought, but when you're doing something like morning pages, my experience is, and then you can tell me if it matches anything you've, you've experienced or you know others' experience, my experience is I'm surprised by the ideas that come out that that I'm I get beyond the flawed notion of flawed and something else emerges but it's not something else I thought of in advance it's unscripted it's back to what you said earlier about not knowing or how that's the way I put it there's a surprise that is at the heart of the spiritual dimension of the artist's way that cannot be predicted but can only be accepted as grace 
How does that strike you? That strikes me as accurate. I believe that when we start The Artist's Way, we think we know who we are and we don't like it very much. And then when you start working with the tools, morning pages, three pages of longhand morning writing about anything, uh, artist dates, going on a festive, solo, playful expedition once a week, taking a walk. When you work with these tools, you begin to have a sense of power and uh, you begin to have a sense that you're connected to a larger benevolent something. And that benevolent something, you don't need to call God. Some people call it Obi-Wan Kenobi. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the, the new book, Seeking Wisdom, A Spiritual Path to Creative Connection, does deal a lot with prayer. Why is prayer important? I think prayer opens our heart. And I think that having an open heart is what we're seeking. And I think that prayer gives us a path. And I I feel like the book traces three kinds of prayer. Prayers of petition, which we all sort of know as Santa Claus prayers. Dear God, please give me what I want. Prayers of gratitude. Dear God, thank you for what you have given me. Uh, and then prayers of praise, which I call the wow God prayers. Wow, God, the moon is miraculous. Wow, God, the Grand Canyon is huge. And these three forms of prayer are sort of stepping stones to what I might want to call an awakened heart. It's it's similar to what Anne Lamont calls help, thanks, wow prayer. Yeah, it seems it seems. It seems similar, but prayer itself is, as you understand it, it's something spontaneous to people. It just comes natural, even if the God that they're praying to, they want to outgrow, they cannot outgrow prayer. It's part of the human psyche. Well, I, I believe that we are taught that prayer is limited in its scope. And I think that what the exercises of the book do is open us up to a broader, higher, wider sense of self. There's an exercise that said, uh, well, what I'd like to talk to God about if it weren't so silly. And we have this idea, again, of a humorless God. And I think that God, in fact, has humor, and grace. Mm. I don't think you can have one without the other. Humor and grace, they sort of go together. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of the people that we encounter in seeking wisdom are, I guess you say, ex-Catholics, if that's the right term. And they have all these complaints about the church. You know, it's misogyny, hypocrisy, issues with LGBTQAI, and and all of that. You could lay those things at the feet of of every religion, I think. So I'm wondering if people who are drawn to you, and not just you, but but drawn to you and, and the work you do in the books around the whole notion of the artist's way, and certainly the book Seeking Wisdom, if they are outgrowing organized religion, and that in a sense you're addressing an emerging 
demographic that, that you might call spiritually independent seekers. They're, they draw from different traditions, but they're independent of, of all of them. And they're creating an, sort of a post-organized religion, religiosity with, you know, writing maybe as, as part of it, not just, I won't make it the, the whole story, but that, that you're really at the heart of a spiritually transformative process that is attracting more and more people who are just burned out by mainstream organized religion. Is that, I mean, when you do your workshops and you talk to people, am, am I right? Are you, are you attracting this new demographic? I think I'm giving a, a voice for people to to articulate their dissatisfaction. And then as they work with the tools, they start to wake up. And from the front of the room, it's a literal process. You, you see people becoming enlightened. You, you see their eyes sparkling. You see them smiling. You you see them reaching to each other. And I think that this sense of connection is what people are missing, that they found in organized religion a sense of separation, and that causes great sorrow. Yeah, I think I mean, that you said it much better than I did. I, I, I don't want to burden you with this, but it's like... You were, okay, I'm just going to say it. It's like you're a priestess of this new kind of spirituality. I don't even want you to respond to that because that's, that's so loaded. But I'm just going to leave it there and then ask you one last question about something else. At the, near the end of Seeking Wisdom, you write about the, what you call the power of routine. And a lot of people I know who are in this spiritually independent category reject, rebel, recoil about the very, you know, by the, are, are, are repulsed in a sense by the very notion of routine. But routine really is at the heart of the work you're asking us to do. So what's the power of routine? Not in the artist's way. I think anyone who reads your books gets that. What's the power of routine in your daily life? There may be overlap, but what, what role does routine play in your daily life? Well, routine is a pivotal thing in my daily life. I wake up in the morning, I go to the page, I do morning pages, I find myself articulating dreams, hunches, intuitions, and I find myself feeling connected. And I have um, an occasion, I hate to confess this, missed morning pages and when I miss my routine, I'm, I miss an influx of grace. So I think routine is pivotal. And if you look at spiritual traditions, you will find that they embrace routine as a necessary part of prayer. And I think that routine gives us grace. And when people start doing morning pages and walks, they begin to find the grace in routine. And if they had previously rejected it, it was probably because it was harsh. And I think that what we're talking about here is gently coaxing people forward. 
Boy, that that is beautifully put. I mean, your way is not harsh. I don't mean artist, but your the whole gift of your work doesn't call us to harsh routine, but it does call us to serious practice, which is where routine comes in. But associating routine with grace, I think, is just brilliant. And, and that's a perfect way to end. Our guest today, Julia Cameron, is the author of many books, but her most recent is Seeking Wisdom, A Spiritual Path to Creative Connection. Julia Cameron, thank you so much for talking with us on the Spirituality and Health Podcast. You're very welcome. You've been listening to the Spirituality and Health Podcast. If you like this episode, please rate and review us in your favorite podcast app. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to share us on social media and tag us at Spirit Health Mag. You can also follow me on the Spirituality and Health website, where I write a regular column called Roadside Musings. Don't forget to subscribe to the print magazine as well. The Spirituality and Health podcast is produced by Ezra Baker Truppiano. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. I'm Suzanne Giesman, and if you've ever wondered about life after death or if it's possible to connect with a higher consciousness, I invite you to join me for my podcast, Messages of Hope. It's my mission to share with you that our loved ones who have passed are always with us, and we are so very loved. I want to teach you how to live a consciously connected and divinely guided life. Listen here on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network.